Part four of the Diary of a Superfluous Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen. The Diary of a Superfluous Man by Ivan Turgenev. Translated by Constance Garnet. Part four. March 27th. Thor continuing. Things were in the position described above. The prince and Lisa were in love with each other. The older Zhogins were waiting to see what would come of it. Bismyonkov was present at the proceedings. There was nothing else to be said of him. I was struggling like a fish on the ice and watching with all my might. I remember that at that time I set myself the task of preventing Lisa at least from falling into the snares of a seducer, and consequently began paying particular attention to the maid-servants and the fateful back-stairs. Though on the other hand I often spent whole nights in dreaming with what touching magnanimity I would one day hold out a hand to the betrayed victim, and say to her, The traitor has deceived thee, but I am thy true friend. Let us forget the past and be happy. When sudden and glad tidings overspread the whole town, the marshal of the district proposed to give a great ball in honour of their respected guest on his private estate, Garnastaevka. All the official world, big and little, of the town of O, received invitations, from the mayor down to the apothecary, an excessively emaciated German, with ferocious pretensions to a good Russian accent, which led him into continually and quite inappropriately employing racy colloquialisms. Tremendous preparations were, of course, put in hand. One purveyor of cosmetics sold sixteen dark blue jars of pomatum, which bore the inscription A la Jesmin. The young ladies provided themselves with tight dresses, agonizing in the waist and jutting out sharply over the stomach. The mamas put formidable erections on their heads by way of caps. The busy papas were half dead with the bustle. The longed-for day arrived at last. I was among those invited. From the town to Gornastaevka was reckoned between seven and eight miles. Kirilla Matveitch offered me a seat in his coach, but I refused. In the same way, children who have been punished, wishing to pay their parents out, refuse their favourite dainties at table. Besides, I felt that my presence would be felt as a constraint by Lisa. Bismyonkov took my place. The prince drove in his own carriage, and I in a wretched little droshky, hired for an immense sum for this solemn occasion. I am not going to describe that ball. Everything about it was just as it always is. There was a band with trumpets extraordinarily out of tune in the gallery, 
there were country gentlemen greatly flustered with their inevitable families, mauve ices, viscous lemonade, servants in boots trodden down at heel and knitted cotton gloves, provincial lions with spasmodically contorted faces, and so on and so on. And all this little world was revolving round its son, round the prince. Lost in the crowd, unnoticed even by the young ladies of eight and forty, with red pimples on their brows and blue flowers on the top of their heads, I stared incessantly, first at the prince, then at Lisa. She was very charmingly dressed and very pretty that evening. They only twice danced together. It is true he danced the mazurka with her, but it seemed to me, at least, that there was a sort of secret, continuous communication between them. Even while not looking at her, while not speaking to her, he was still, as it were, addressing her, and her alone. He was handsome and brilliant and charming with other people, for her sake only. She was apparently conscious that she was the queen of the ball, and that she was loved. Her face at once beamed with childlike delight and innocent pride, and was suddenly illuminated by another deeper feeling. Happiness radiated from her. I observed all this. It was not the first time I had watched them. At first this wounded me intensely. Afterwards it, as it were, touched me. But finally it infuriated me. I suddenly felt extraordinarily wrathful, and I remember was extraordinarily delighted at this new sensation, and even conceived a certain respect for myself. We'll show them we're not crushed yet, I said to myself. When the first inviting notes of the mazurka sounded, I looked about me with composure, and with a cool and easy air, approached a long-faced young lady with a red and shiny nose, a mouth that stood awkwardly open, as though it had come unbuttoned, and a scraggy neck that recalled the handle of a bass vial. I went up to her, and with a perfunctory scrape of my heels, invited her to the dance. She was wearing a dress of faded rosebud pink, not full-blown rose-colour. On her head quivered a striped and dejected beetle of some sort on a thick bronze pin, and altogether this lady was, if one may so express it, soaked through and through with a sort of sour ennui and inveterate lack of success. From the very commencement of the evening she had not once stirred from her seat, no one had thought of asking her to dance. One flaxen-headed youth of sixteen had, through lack of a partner, been on the point of addressing this lady, and had taken a step in her direction, but had thought better of it, stared at her, and hurriedly dived into the crowd. You can fancy with what joyful amazement she agreed to my proposal. I led her in triumph right across the ballroom, picked out two chairs, and sat down with her in the ring of the mazurka, among ten couples, almost opposite the prince, who had of course been offered the first place. The prince, as I have said already, was dancing with Lisa. Neither I nor my partner was disturbed by invitations. 
consequently we had plenty of time for conversation. To tell the truth, my partner was not conspicuous for her capacity for the utterance of words in consecutive speech. She used her mouth principally for the achievement of a strange downward smile, such as I had never till then beheld, while she raised her eyes upward, as though some unseen force were pulling her face in two. But I did not feel her lack of eloquence. Happily I felt full of wrath, and my partner did not make me shy. I fell to finding fault with everything and everyone in the world, with this special emphasis on town-bred youngsters and Petersburg dandies, and went to such lengths at last that my partner gradually ceased smiling, and instead of turning her eyes upward, began suddenly, from astonishment, I suppose, to squint, and that so strangely, as though she had for the first time observed the fact that she had a nose on her face and one of the lions referred to above who was sitting next me did not once take his eyes off me he positively turned to me with the expression of an actor on the stage who was waked up in an unfamiliar place as though he would say is it really you while i poured forth this tirade i still however kept watch on the prince and lisa they were continually invited but i suffered less when they were both dancing and even when they were sitting side by side and smiling as they talked to each other that sweet smile which hardly leaves the faces of happy lovers even then i was not in such torture but when lisa flitted across the room with some desperate dandy of an hussar while the prince with her blue gauze scarf on his knees followed her dreamily with his eyes, as though delighting in his conquest. Then, oh, then I went through intolerable agonies, and in my anger gave vent to such spiteful observations that the pupils of my partner's eyes simply fastened on her nose. Meanwhile the mazurka was drawing to a close. They were beginning the figure called La Confidante, in this figure the lady sits in the middle of a circle, chooses another lady as her confidante, and whispers in her ear the name of the gentleman with whom she wishes to dance. Her partner conducts one after another of the dancers to her, but the lady, who is in the secret, refuses them, till at last the happy man fixed on beforehand arrives. Lisa sat in the middle of the circle, and chose the daughter of the host one of those young ladies of whom one says, God help them. The prince proceeded to discover her choice, after presenting about a dozen young men to her in vain. The daughter of the house refused them all with the most amiable of smiles. He at last turned to me. Something extraordinary took place within me at that instant. I, as it were, twitched all over, and would have refused, but got up and went along. The prince conducted me to Lisa. She did not even look at me. The daughter of the house shook her head in refusal. The prince turned to me, and, probably incited by the goose-like expression of my face, made a deep bow. This sarcastic bow, this refusal, transmitted to me through my triumphant rival, his careless smile, Lisa's indifferent inattention, 
all this lashed me to frenzy. I moved up to the prince and whispered furiously, You think fit to laugh at me, it seems. The prince looked at me with contemptuous surprise, took my arm again, and making a show of reconducting me to my seat, answered coldly, I? Yes, you, I went on in a whisper, obeying, however, that is to say, following him to my place. You! But I do not intend to permit any empty-headed Petersburg upstart. The prince smiled tranquilly, almost condescendingly, pressed my arm, whispered, I understand you, but this is not the place. We will have a word later. Turned away from me, went up to Bismyonkov, and led him up to Lisa. The pale little official turned out to be the chosen partner. Lisa got up to meet him. Sitting beside my partner with the dejected beetle on her head, I felt almost a hero. My heart beat violently, my breast heaved gallantly under my starched shirt-front. I drew deep and hurried breaths, and suddenly gave the local lion near me such a magnificent glare that there was an involuntary quiver of his foot in my direction. Having disposed of this person, I scanned the whole circle of dancers. I fancied two or three gentlemen were staring at me with some perplexity, but in general my conversation with the prince had passed unnoticed. My rival was already back in his chair, perfectly composed, and with the same smile on his face. Bismyonkov led Lisa back to her place. She gave him a friendly bow, and at once turned to the prince, as I fancied, with some alarm. But he laughed in response, with a graceful wave of his hand, and must have said something very agreeable to her, for she flushed with delight, dropped her eyes, and then bent them with affectionate reproach upon him. The heroic frame of mind which had suddenly developed in me had not disappeared by the end of the mazurka, but I did not indulge in any more epigrams or quizzing. I contented myself with glancing occasionally with gloomy severity at my partner, who was obviously beginning to be afraid of me, and was utterly tongue-tied and continuously blinking by the time I placed her under the protection of her mother a very fat woman with a red cap on her head. Having consigned the scared maiden lady to her natural belongings, I turned away to a window, folded my arms, and began to await what would happen. I had rather long to wait. The prince was the whole time surrounded by his host, surrounded, simply, as England is surrounded by the sea, to say nothing of the other members of the marshal's family, and the rest of the guests. And besides, he could hardly go up to such an insignificant person as me and begin to talk, without arousing a general feeling of surprise. This insignificance, I remember, was positively a joy to me at the time. All right, I thought, as I watched him courteously addressing first one and then another highly respected personage, honoured by his notice, if only for an instant's flash, as the poets say. All right, my dear, you'll come to me soon. I've insulted you anyway. 
At last the prince, adroitly escaping from the throng of his adorers, passed close by me, looked somewhere between the window and my hair, was turning away, and suddenly stood still, as though he had recollected something. "'Ah, yes,' he said, turning to me with a smile. "'By the way, I have a little matter to talk to you about.' Two country gentlemen, of the most persistent, who were obstinately pursuing the prince, probably imagined the little matter to relate to official business, and respectfully fell back. The prince took my arm and led me apart. My heart was thumping at my ribs. "'You, I believe,' he began, emphasising the word you, and looking at my chin with a contemptuous expression, which, strange to say, was supremely becoming to his fresh and handsome face. You said something abusive to me. I said what I thought, I replied, raising my voice. Hush, quietly, he observed. Decent people don't bawl. You would like, perhaps, to fight me. That's your affair. I answered, drawing myself up. "'I shall be obliged to challenge you,' he remarked carelessly, "'if you don't withdraw your expressions.' "'I do not intend to withdraw from anything,' I rejoined with pride. "'Really,' he observed with an ironical smile. "'In that case,' he continued after a brief pause, "'I shall have the honour of sending my second to you to-morrow.' "'Very good.' I said in a voice, if possible, even more indifferent. The prince gave a slight bow. "'I cannot prevent you from considering me empty-headed,' he added with a haughty droop of his eyelids. "'But the prince's N cannot be upstarts. "'Good-bye till we meet, Mr... Mr. Stukaturin.' He quickly turned his back on me, and again approached his host— who was already beginning to get excited. Mr. Stukaturin. My name is Chulkaturin. I could think of nothing to say to him in reply to this last insult, and could only gaze after him with fury. Till tomorrow, I muttered, clenching my teeth, and I at once looked for an officer of my acquaintance, a cavalry captain in the Uhlans, called Kalabertyaev, a desperate rake, and a very good fellow. To him I related in few words my quarrel with the prince, and asked him to be my second. He, of course, promptly consented, and I went home. I could not sleep all night. From excitement, not from cowardice. I am not a coward. I positively thought very little of the possibility confronting me of losing my life, that, as the Germans assure us, highest good on earth. I could think only of Lisa, of my ruined hopes, of what I ought to do. Ought I to try to kill the prince? I asked myself. And of course I wanted to kill him, not from revenge, but from a desire for Lisa's good. "'But she will not survive such a blow,' I went on. "'No, better let him kill me.' "'I must own it was an agreeable reflection, too, "'that I, an obscure provincial person, "'had forced a man of such consequence to fight a duel with me. 
The morning light found me still absorbed in these reflections, and not long after it appeared Kalaberdiaev. Well, he asked me, where's the prince's second? Upon my word, I answered with annoyance, it's seven o'clock at the most. The prince is still asleep, I should imagine. In that case, replied the cavalry officer, in no wise daunted, order some tea for me. My head aches from yesterday evening. I've not taken my clothes off all night. Though indeed, he added with a yawn, I don't as a rule often take my clothes off. Some tea was given him. He drank off six glasses of tea and rum, smoked four pipes, told me he had on the previous day bought for next to nothing a horse the coachman refused to drive, and that he was meaning to drive her out with one of her forelegs tied up, and fell asleep without undressing on the sofa with a pipe in his mouth. I got up and put my papers to rights. One note of invitation from Lisa, the one note I had received from her, I was on the point of putting in my bosom, but on second thoughts I flung it in a drawer. Kalaberdiaev was snoring feebly, with his head hanging from the leather pillow. For a long while, I remember, I scrutinized his unkempt, daring, careless and good-natured face. At ten o'clock the man announced the arrival of Bismyonkov. The prince had chosen him as second. We both together roused the soundly sleeping cavalry officer. He sat up, stared at us with dim eyes, in a hoarse voice demanded vodka. He recovered himself, and exchanging greetings with Bismyonkov, he went with him into the next room to arrange matters. The consultation of the worthy seconds did not last long. A quarter of an hour later they both came into my bedroom. Kalaberdiaev announced to me that we're going to fight today at three o'clock with pistols. In silence I bent my head in token of my agreement. Bismyonkov at once took leave of us and departed. He was rather pale and inwardly agitated, like a man unused to such jobs, but he was nevertheless very polite and chilly. I felt as it were conscience-stricken in his presence, and did not dare look him in the face. Kalaberdiaev began telling me about his horse. This conversation was very welcome to me. I was afraid he would mention Lisa. But the good-natured cavalry officer was not a gossip, and moreover he despised all women, calling them, God knows why, green stuff. At two o'clock we had lunch, and at three we were at the place fixed upon, the very birch copse in which I had once walked with Lisa, a couple of yards from the precipice. We arrived first, but the prince and Bismyonkov did not keep us long waiting. The prince was, without exaggeration, as fresh as a rose. His brown eyes looked out with excessive cordiality from under the peak of his cap. He was smoking a cigar, and on seeing Kalaberdiaev shook his hand in a friendly way. Even to me he bowed very genially. I was conscious, on the contrary, of being pale, and my hands to my terrible vexation were slightly trembling. My throat was parched. I had never fought a duel before. 
Oh, God, I thought, if only that ironical gentleman doesn't take my agitation for timidity. I was inwardly cursing my nerves, but glancing at last straight in the prince's face, and catching on his lips an almost imperceptible smile, I suddenly felt furious again, and was at once at my ease. Meanwhile our seconds were fixing the barrier, measuring out the paces, loading the pistols. Kalabergiaev did most, Bismyonkov rather watched him. It was a magnificent day, as fine as the day of that ever-memorable walk. The thick blue of the sky peeped, as then, through the golden green of the leaves. Their lisping seemed to mock me. The prince went on smoking his cigar, leaning his shoulder against the trunk of a young lime-tree. "'Kindly take your places, gentlemen.' "'Ready,' Kalabardyayev pronounced at last, handing us pistols. The prince walked a few steps away, stood still, and, turning his head, asked me over his shoulder, "'You still refuse to take back your words, then?' I tried to answer him, but my voice failed me, and I had to content myself with a contemptuous wave of the hand. The prince smiled again and took up his position in his place. We began to approach one another. I raised my pistol, was about to aim at the enemy's chest, but suddenly tilted it up, as though someone had given my elbow a shove, and fired. The prince tottered and put his left hand to his left temple. A thread of blood was flowing down his cheek from under the white leather glove. Bismyonkov rushed up to him. "'It's all right,' he said, taking off his cap, which the bullet had pierced. "'Since it's in the head and I've not fallen, it must be a mere scratch.' He calmly pulled a cambric handkerchief out of his pocket and put it to his blood-stained curls. I stared at him as though I were turned to stone." and did not stir. "'Go up to the barrier, if you please,' Kalabardyayev observed severely. I obeyed. "'Is the duel to go on?' he added, addressing Bismyonkov. Bismyonkov made him no answer, but the prince, without taking the handkerchief from the wound, without even giving himself the satisfaction of tormenting me at the barrier, replied with a smile, "'The duel is at an end,' and fired into the air." I was almost crying with rage and vexation. This man, by his magnanimity, had utterly trampled me in the mud. He had completely crushed me. I was on the point of making objections, on the point of demanding that he should fire at me. But he came up to me and held out his hand. "'It's all forgotten between us, isn't it?' he said in a friendly voice. I looked at his blanched face, at the blood-stained handkerchief, and utterly confounded, put to shame, and annihilated, I pressed his hand. Gentlemen, he added, turning to the seconds, everything, I hope, will be kept secret. Of course, cried Kalabardyayev, but prince, allow me. And he himself bound up his head. The prince, as he went away, bowed to me once more. But Bismyonkov did not even glance at me. Shattered, morally shattered, 
I went homewards with Kalabergiaev. "'Why, what's the matter with you?' the cavalry captain asked me. "'Set your mind at rest. The wound's not serious. "'You'll be able to dance by tomorrow, if you like. "'Or are you sorry you didn't kill him? "'You're wrong if you are. He's a first-rate fellow.' "'What business had he to spare me?' I muttered at last. "'Oh, so that's it,' the cavalry captain rejoined tranquilly. "'Oh, you writing fellows are too much for me.' I don't know what put it into his head to consider me an author. I absolutely decline to describe my torments during the evening following upon that luckless duel. My vanity suffered indescribably. It was not my conscience that tortured me. The consciousness of my imbecility crushed me. I have given myself the last decisive blow by my own act. I kept repeating, as I strode up and down my room, the prince wounded by me, and forgiving me. Yes, Lisa is now his. Now nothing can save her. Nothing can hold her back on the edge of the abyss. I knew very well that our duel could not be kept secret, in spite of the prince's words. In any case, it could not remain a secret for Lisa. "'The prince is not such a fool,' I murmured in a frenzy of rage, "'as not to profit by it. "'But meanwhile I was mistaken. "'The whole town knew of the duel, and of its real cause, next day. "'Of course. "'But the prince had not blabbed of it. "'On the contrary, when with his head bandaged and an explanation ready, "'he made his appearance before Lisa. "'She had already heard everything.' Whether Bismyonkov had betrayed me, or the news had reached her by other channels, I cannot say. Though, indeed, can anything ever be concealed in a little town? You can fancy how Lisa received him, how all the family of the Ozhogins received him. As for me, I suddenly became an object of universal indignation and loathing, a monster, a jealous, bloodthirsty madman. My few acquaintances shunned me as if I were a leper. The authorities of the town promptly addressed the prince with a proposal to punish me in a severe and befitting manner. Nothing but the persistent and urgent entreaties of the prince himself averted the calamity that menaced me. That man was fated to annihilate me in every way. By his generosity, he had shut, as it were, a coffin lid down upon me. It's needless to say that the Ozhogin's doors were at once closed against me. Kirilla Matveitch even sent me back a bit of a pencil I had left in his house. In reality, he, of all people, had no reason to be angry with me. My insane, that was the expression current in the town, jealousy, had pointed out, defined, so to speak, the relations of the prince to Lisa. Both the elder Zhogins themselves and their fellow-citizens began to look on him almost as betrothed to her. This could not, as a fact, have been quite to his liking. But he was greatly attracted by Lisa, and meanwhile he had not at that time attained his aims. With all the adroitness of a clever man of the world, he took advantage of his new position, 
and promptly entered, as they say, into the spirit of his new part. But I, for myself, for my future, I renounced all hopes at that time. When suffering reaches the point of making our whole being creak and groan like an overloaded cart, it ought to cease to be ridiculous. But no, laughter not only accompanies tears to the end, to exhaustion, to the impossibility of shedding more. It even rings and echoes where the tongue is dumb and complaint itself is dead. And so, as in the first place I don't intend to expose myself as ridiculous, even to myself, and secondly, as I'm fearfully tired, I will put off the continuation, and please God the conclusion of my story, till tomorrow. End of Part 4 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey